Welcome everyone, and thank you for joining us. We have about an hour together. This session is going to be an invigorating discussion about how and what we can do to address the suspicions that exist around the world of modern medicine, specifically in relation to clinical research. Scientific discoveries are key to driving more healthy years and our increasingly longer lives. For the best future outcomes, when it comes to discovering new medicines and advancing scientific research, we need clinical trials. Participants in clinical research have to reflect the disease being studied to help ensure that the most efficacious outcomes are being accounted for. Yet, a lack of confidence in clinical research process exists due in part to historical examples around mistrust and misconceptions. We are so happy to be here at South by Southwest because this is a forum where we can inform and basically innovate around solutions across industries and learn from each other. Collaboration is key. And I represent Abby, a biopharmaceutical company, and our work is constantly thinking about how we can accelerate medicines to market through innovation. But we recognize that we can't do it alone and insulated, and so we need key partnerships. And so we're so fortunate to be here with the diverse perspectives that we have on this panel to really talk about how we can come together to co-create solutions around the challenges that we exist in relation to creating more equitable access to our clinical trials. We want to strengthen these partnerships and think about how we can have an enduring conversation. This conference is once a year, and while it does spark a lot of innovation and collaboration, we want to be able to harness that energy and keep the momentum going on a continuous basis. And so we will have a call to action for everyone in terms of how to actually be able to action what we talk about beyond these walls. But most importantly, we need to recognize that more people need to understand why diversity and inclusivity matters in reducing health disparities and to ensure that our clinical trials meet the needs of our patients today and tomorrow. So with that, we know that there's partnership that is needed and for Abby, we want to be able to have a way to be able to build those connections to the community on a consistent basis. And that is why we are launching the ADMIRE program. ADMIRE is basically an acronym that stands for Advancing Diversity Matters through inclusive representation and equity. And this is going to be our forum to be able to create sustainable relationships and partnerships through individuals who are activated making change and how we can co-create our solutions in terms of how to meet the needs of patients in underserved areas and be able to advance health equity. With that, I'm so excited to have the uh, panelists here with me um, and recognize that there are women uh, leaders in their respective fields and how we're coming together with our different vantage points to talk about how we can advance solutions. And so I'll start with Dr. Cheryl Burgess, board certified dermatologist and clinical trial investigator. Dr. Burgess has run many clinical trials from different scales uh, across a number of different pharmaceutical companies as partners. She is passionate about ensuring that there's diverse participation and overcoming these challenges and creating a more equitable clinical trial space. We have Geraldine Wari, and she's a specialist in future forecasting who takes a forensic look at how you can have cultural research to identify system changes and plenary imperatives. Geraldine has worked extensively in fashion, beauty, and design, and will draw parallel examples to how to redress the balance. And then we have Sheila Marie Johnson. She's a veteran and metastatic breast cancer survivor. Sheila Marie is here to share her perspective as someone who has a firsthand experience of what it means to be a participant in a clinical trial, so what clinical trials has meant for her in her treatment journey. So with that, I'll open up the conversation to basically ask the question, why is it important for you to have this conversation? Dr. Burgess? This is very important and personal for me because I think safety and efficacy of medications, treatment, devices is very important because it varies between populations and we need to know about that. 
And I guess on my website it says everybody owns the future, and essentially we colonize the future with the decisions we make in the present. So it's very important everybody understands that we all have it within ourselves to shape the future, build it, envision it, but most importantly act on it to really create an equitable future. Yeah. And for me as a patient, I don't I would not be here if this if if it wasn't for clinical research and clinical trials. So that's why I'm passionate about it. Can you speak a little bit more to that clinical trial journey and how it intersected with your treatment journey? So in 2009, I was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, and they told me I would be dead. Um, only had three to five years to live. Um, Thirteen years later, because of clinical research, I'm still here. So, <laughs> um, and my mom died of metastatic breast cancer in 2004, and I didn't know metastatic and stage four were the same thing. In 2009, I was in the military, I was sitting at my desk and I sneezed. And I'm like, well, you know, and it felt weird, weird and it burned. So I called my military doctor and I said, um, I'm sne I sneezed and it burned. I said, I think it's my breast. And I had been getting my yearly mammogram since my mom had passed away five years ago. And um, they called me in for a mammogram. I did my mammogram and a radiologist called me in and he said, you see this white stuff, this is breast cancer. And what I was feeling was when I sneezed, the um, um, breast cancer had already spread to my ribs. And every time I sneezed, the cancer was pressing up against my ribs. So I retired from the military and my clinical trial ex um, experience was in 2018, I had another progression. And my doctor, which she advocated for me to be on this clinical trial, and I asked the same question, the guinea pig. <laughs> And she said no, and she actually sat down and she explained to me, this is the process of a clinical trial and they can't do that, you know, clinical trial, um, guinea pigs and different things about the mistrust in the um, black community. And once she explained it to me, um, like I said, I would not be here if it hadn't been for that trial because I was on it for three and a half years. And they found out so much from this trial it was FDA approved and you know, I'm like, I'm a part of that because now they see how it affects black women. So that's why I decided to be on a clinical trial and it's the best decision I've ever made. I think it's interesting to hear your story because in the work that I do at Abby, I, I head up our diversity addition inclusion team but we're focusing on creating more equitable access to trials and enhanced trial experiences and we hear a lot of the challenges in terms of clinical trial access and you're here to tell your story about how you work with your physician and the data being access and see the benefits and the outcomes of it. Yeah. But we know that that may not be the case for everyone. So can you speak to some of the experiences around those in your social circle? Are they the same? No, because um, sometimes we're just not asked because we, we're already, okay, this black, in the black community, they're not going to want to participate in clinical trials because of, okay, medical mistrust, but ask me first. There was a study done that said that 96% of black women aren't even asked about clinical trials, and 85% said they would participate in clinical trials, but give me that option. Don't just count me out and leave your biases at the door, because if it not had been for my doctor advocating for that, I wouldn't have been in a trial, you know, and then I went on to see how many black women were on this trial, and there were only like seven black women on there. And the thing I hear all the time too is, um, well, we can't reach black women, but I was reached. So you do the same thing, exact same thing what my doctor did for me. And you can go into the community and reach black women um, or men um, for, uh, for clinical trials. You know, for me, from my personal perspective, back in the 90s, over 20 years ago, um, I lost one of my very best friends to neurosarcoma, and with her journey, what was a real stressor was the, the, the sort of breakdown of trust with her doctor, the way that she felt her doctor was not really treating her like a, like a human being. And so by the time I was trying to stress upon her the fact that there were all these clinical trials going on that she might be able to, to join. She, she just had no trust in the, 
any any kind of med medical uh, action, and I just wanted to be left alone. And, and uh, a couple months later, she actually about a year later, she passed away. And I, to this day, in a year, in a month, it'll be the anniversary of her passing. And to this day, I always wonder what that would have been like for her had she joined a, a clinical trial. And I, I really feel in my heart that not having that trust with her and that dialogue with her and being listened to by her doctor and being pitched the idea of, of, um, of clinical trials in a trusting environment in a safe space, who knows, she might still be with us today. Thank you for sharing that. And so Dr. Burgess, as the physician on the panel, we've talked about you know historical suspicions that exist around clinical research. Why do you think that they have such a stronghold on the attitudes today based on what you've seen? Well, we've all been witness to the pandemic of COVID. And I always question why did people not, especially black people, not want to get the COVID vaccine? And when you look back in history with the Tuskegee experiment that went on for 40 years and from 1932 to 1972, a lot of us were around in 1972. And we remember that. And so the mistrust has come from that. In addition to um, that, just more, more recently, is when you look at um, COVID, and where the pulse oximeter readings on black people was, was skewed. And not until last year did the FDA actually address that issue and that some patients who really had to go to the hospital, like I know you went to the hospital because of COVID, they weren't put on respirators fast enough because it seemed like their um, oxygen saturation of their blood was fine. But in reality, we know that they were hypoxic or they were lacking oxygen, but because of the brown skin, it doesn't show that. So there's a lot of things that are going on in the medical community that gives people the mistrust in that, well, it's not for me, or they're trying to make me into a guinea pig. But I think we need to be able to get to people in more um, uh, uh, relationships and where say concordant, maybe it's a female to a female or a black to a black patient-doctor relationship where people will gain that trust again. So the, the issue a lot of times with women is I have a man doctor, a male doctor, and he doesn't really care about my breast cancer or he doesn't you know, deal with that. And so that's one thing that we really need to work on. I think it's interesting because to your point, the pandemic exasperated a lot of the health inequities and actually showcased a lot of it. And, and we know the history of mistrust that has come to fruition and we've seen more of the impact of it. But recognizing that we also see what's happening in terms of pop culture. And so Geraldine, just from your perspective, what influence does popular culture have on how we as individuals or collective groups make decisions? Today, it has obviously the virality and social media, um, popular culture is incredibly, in, uh, is really living in, in also in the digital space. And what we see now with social media um, is this idea that we're all kind of micro scamming, or everything is a scam, and the spread of fake news, and the fact that now uh, what are called super liars or super scanners are actually sometimes rewarded based on how psyche their, uh, their opinion might be, which raises often the number of likes, the number of hits, and, and traction in the media, and that all of that gets encouraged, but it's incredibly destructive because there's a complete breakdown in trust where um, basically it, People feel like they can't really trust institutions in the same way. They might not even be able to trust a, a public media figure. We've seen recently where big public media figures saying one thing to get higher ratings, but actually uh, believing something else completely that was completely different. So all of that is contributing to a, a deepening sense of, of just a lack lack of trust and, and we really need to, to address that in, in popular culture. 
I think oftentimes when we hear about social media platforms and, and pop culture, it's a negative connotation. But just thinking about the fact that we want to think about solutions for the future, I think I'll go to you, Sheila, first with this question. How can we use popular culture platforms um, for forces of good or change and really put an end to those apparent beliefs that no longer reflect where we are in reality? I always say social media is a curse. Yeah, curse and blessing. Um, I just think that we need to keep putting out credi credible information um, for patients because there are so many Facebook groups and Twitter and everything, and some of the patients believe their Facebook, um, uh, who are the people who are part of this group, before they believe their physician because. Um, I was just on a Facebook group and um, she was asking about, well, which treatment should I try first? But her doctor had already told her which treatment she was going to get. But she was asking the Facebook group, well, which, so she's going to go with the Facebook group or what they said. So we just got to continue to um, keep um, putting out correct information and sending, sending people to credible sources. Um, and it does, it plays an uh, important part in you know, the way people decide on treatments or even the way people decide on, um, on doctors. You know, you could put, well, I'm going to see doctor, 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 whoever. And you put it on Facebook, they're like, ooh, I didn't like that doctor. They're gonna go to somebody else, you know? So we gotta continue just to keep putting, trusting information out there and continue having forums like this to educate the community that you know, um, you know about um, social media and how we should be using social media. So. Yeah, definitely there's a use of crowdsourcing information. So then I'm going to toss it over to you, Dr. Burgess. How do you combat that as an expert, a physician? How do you combat the, the, the power of social media and the misinformation that exists? It, it's very difficult, first of all. Um, I, one, as she was saying, her doctor said, don't get on the internet, don't go to Dr. Google. And I say the same thing. Um, I, I do a lot of talking on artificial intelligence and Google Health has a thing, but it's not for skin of color. And so I tell people, don't go on Google, don't, don't go to those social media aspects. Basically, there was a study that was done in 2021 that showed that out of the skin experts, which the board-certified dermatologists are skin experts, and we go through medical school residency, we get board-certified. 88% of the people who were out there on social media were given skin expert advice, and they're not. So that's 88% of people believe what the influencers say and and other non-dermatologists say about skin. And a lot of things are misdiagnosed because it shows up different in different ethnicity groups. And so that's what I advise people to do is you're board certified in a specific specialty. If you see board certification, but there's no specialty behind it, be suspect. Because anyone who's done all of that training is going to say, I'm board certified in dermatology, or I'm board certified in internal medicine. So that is one way to um, pick out the frauds. And I appreciate that, because when you gave us your intro, like make sure you don't forget the board certified dermatologist. Then that's right. But I didn't want to you know, feel kind of snobbish, but no, I worked hard for that board certification. And that is something that divides the real people mm -hmm. from the fake people. And we're all used to fake news and all that, and, and that is one thing that makes a big difference. Right, no, and, and you're an expert and you earned your credentials, and it's, it's important to be able to highlight that, because I learned that, that was a new fun fact that I learned, so now I'm gonna look for that. Yeah, and I, I think also, going back to this idea that the microscanning, some some people, not everyone, are writing on this kind of aspirational message or mm -hmm. trending topic in beauty or mm -hmm. trending interest. But the board, things like board certifications or if you're a part of a specific network where you have commitments and need to report back every year, that's really important in my field in futurism. 
we hear a lot of sound bites of like everybody owns the future, that's beautiful and aspirational, but what does that mean? How do you actually manifest that in the work and the impact that you're trying to make? And I know for me, I'm part of the, the UN um, Conscious Fashion and Lifestyle Network. I am committed to a couple of the sustainable development goals after we report back every year. And so that's my way of telling other people I'm serious. I'm not just doing this for sound bites. I'm, I, I have accountability, and that's what the certification is really yeah. important for. And as my doctor did say, you know, like a couple of days later, I was Googling stage four breast cancer, and I'm like, this got me dying in three days, you know? And I, t and I was crying, and I told her, and she said, Sheila, stay off the internet. She said, come see me with any questions. She's, um, and she said, too, if my bedside manner is ever bad, I want you to tell me. So I knew right then that this was a doctor for me. Um, and as I was saying earlier that, you know, with big corporations or um, um, big corporations, we really need to have influencers, black influencers, uh, white influencers, different influencers, because they'll listen to me before they listen to the big corporation. Because it's coming from somebody's personal story and it's coming from a person who's been through that journey. So why not have patient advocate groups in each organization to say, hey, what are we doing wrong? How is our marketing wrong? Where we can get across on social media that we're putting out correct information. Um, um, so I think you know that's another way that we can experience on social media as well. And, and that actually speaks to the work that, that I drive within our company. It's a matter of we, we have the messaging and we know what, what we want to work towards and, and, and what is aspirational, but we recognize that we can't do it without these trusted sources, right? The message hits differently when it's coming from you. Yeah. And you've been through the clinical trial. You can say firsthand how you receive the information and what you've done with it and what's the impact. Mm -hmm. So I think kind of transitioning into that because I think you have a, a, a great story to tell about the partnership that you have like with your with your position. But again, we recognize that everyone doesn't have that same connection and that trust. And so, you know, just thinking about what what needs to be in place to address the mistrust that exists, not just within healthcare, but within clinical research. And I'll toss it over to you, Dr. Burgess. I think it's really important. My journey basically mm -hmm. I was um, working at uh, National Institutes of Health one summer as a medical student and I decided, you know, I really, really liked research. But it took me about 10 to 15 years before I could break through. And it wasn't that I wasn't a good doctor, it was I was overlooked. And I think that a lot of big pharmaceutical companies or sponsors, as you will, in the clinical research um, atmosphere, arena, they do not seek out skin of color clinical research or principal investigators. And now I'm turning down clinical trials because I'm so busy. But basically, it went into um, the aspect that they needed me at that point. So in the early 2000s, when certain companies were stating you're past the FDA and we want to market that all these products are made for everyone, the FDA said, no, you can't say that. So there were a lot of post-market clinical trials that were done, phase four, on things that I was popular at that point then, because I could recruit the skin of color patients into my clinical trials. I knew other people who could come on and do the same thing, and that's what they needed. So they didn't come to me until they really needed me. And I don't think that should be the case because we're losing a lot of potential subjects in the clinical mm -hmm. trial who could benefit. Some of the medications are very expensive. That's the only way that the, the patient is going to get the medication. And so it's really, really important that we educate more skin of color, principal investigators, board certified, definitely you have to be board certified in your field. But I think that's necessary because we're gonna draw that concordant patient to our sites. And of course you can't say that in say somewhere Midwest that there may not be a lot of um, physicians of color, but definitely we can start trying and looking for them. 
And I think I think the point that you made about the ten years that you that it took to kind of break into the clinical research space is actually a poignant one, right? Because I think from a pharmaceutical company perspective, we have our physicians that we've worked with, and I think like anyone, like you know who you've worked with for a long time, and it's difficult to kind of go away from who you have existing relationships to be able to branch out and see other opportunities. And so I think it's not just um, from a cultural perspective, it's just being a new investigator and breaking into clinical trials in general is a little difficult. And I know within our team, we actually introduced a new pathway program, if you will, for us to be able to actually, to your point, make it easier now, right? Where you had to find, you had to find a path to break into the industry and it wasn't until there was a need in that particular time to seek you out. But that's not, we don't want it to be where you have to be sought out. It has to be a place where if you have an interest, you can actually have a pathway in. And so we are doing our due diligence to actually create a training program for new investigators to be able to start to have that entry. So the challenges that you faced years ago shouldn't be the same challenges that a new investigator faces and, today. And I just have to come yeah. in, Abby, because I'm on their advisory board mm -hmm. and that was one of yeah. my suggestions. Yeah. And it took a year or so for them yeah. to say, you know what, we took your idea and we're running with it. And I, I'm so glad you're doing that. Yeah, yeah, and that's where partnership is important. And so, um, but I just wanna say too, um, I just seen my doctor last week and she said, Sheila, I want my student to come in. And I said, okay. And when she came in, she was black. And I, I got real excited. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, you know, we want to, you know, see people and doctors and in our, on our medical team that look like us, you know, um, culturally. So. And so, Dr. Burgess, I just want to go back to your journey. So tell us a little bit about why you went into medicine like what drew you to medicine and then what drew you drew you to clinical research also well i i always wanted to be a physician i guess but um one summer because i grew up in washington state and i live in washington dc i i needed to get a job that summer in order to stay you know in my apartment so i took a job at nih and it was in dermatology and so being, being encouraged to do something like that, being all the way across the country was a, a, you know, it was a desire in itself that am I gonna be able to be out on my own and do that? And so the motivation was there. Um, then when I got out of residency, I'm looking to do research because I did my research at NIH and no one was around. And mm -hmm. I almost had to beg or go to different companies to say, you know, I do have a background, but I was never given the chance. Once I got the chance, then I was in demand to the point where I'm like, well, it can't just be me out there. It can't be, mm -hmm. you know, a group of 10 people in the mm -hmm. whole US. That's when I started mentoring other people and, and getting people interested in research. And the thing what I found out is a lot of people don't know about it. Mm -hmm. And you know, working with some of the people at Abbey, I'm like, why don't we have a principal investigators 101 that we train people so they even kind of know about it. They have no idea what it involves. But I just happened to get a job one summer where I was exposed to it, but that was it. So now I do, you know, lots of trials in where I'm turning down trials. I've hired, I have four other doctors who work with me and we're all doing the clinical trials, being sub-investigators and, and principal investigators. And I think we're one of maybe five in the whole country. So that's not good. Well, you've come a long way, though, and yeah. so that that, that speaks you. to the, the the endurance that you had to, to pave that way so that hopefully someone else doesn't have as hard of a time to be able to get there. That, that's what I'm working on. <laughs> <laughs> Geraldine, I think just from your vantage point as a futurist, just thinking, what, what do you think needs to be in place to address mistrust in the clinical research process? So I think we need to look at it from really uh, a basic reality and a place where I Oh, sorry, I forgot that I was not speaking in the mic. Um, 
as, as a futurist, I always look at the micro and the macro research and from a perspective of you know, ethical uh, equity in, in this field, we need to look at a much more granular and personalized approach and a much more micro way of, of really looking at the individual. From a macro perspective in futures, we look at what's happening in society. From a micro perspective, we might look to primary research and as much as what's happening in society and understanding the broader strokes of what's happening in, in this field are important here, we really, really need to understand plurality and intersectionality of everyone's different needs, context. Um, it's, it's, it's just incredibly important. Yeah, and I think there's a default when we think about diversity to race and ethnicity, but it's also age and sex, and also to your point, that intersectionality across those different subcategories. Yeah, and, I, and you know, we haven't addressed as much as the gender mm -hmm. aspect of things here today, but I know from a woman's perspective, it can be uh, really tricky to get the right kind of health mm -hmm. attention as well. Um, so. Oh, thank you. And Geraldine will stay with you. Yeah. Um, just, you know, do you think achieving diverse and inclusive representation in clinical research will naturally lead to greater health equity? I think the the obvious answer is yes, but I think also we have a tendency to just use semantics and then just overuse them, almost exhaust them. So the terms diversity and inclusion are very popular across many fields now. In my, you know, in fashion, which is a field I. I address very much. Um, we see this term used so much that it's almost lost meaning, and therefore I think we need to extend the glossary so that it can also reflect all of the different contexts and intersectionalities and really uh, go deeper into the meaning of diversity and inclusion, a bit like sustainability. What does that mean? You know, we need to be more specific and, uh, and try and avoid, otherwise, it just becomes a soundbite. And um, the other thing I wanted to, to say is that health equity is, is obviously a, is a journey and it's very personal. And, and I think going back to my point in terms of, of working on a macro system, if we look at the medical field as a very large system where we work with a, data, a broad data set to, to, to come to conclusions that we feel are reliable, in terms of diversity and inclusion, the thing is that we actually need to rely on data that is perhaps not scalable. A lot of personal conversations, and that might feel a little bit um, the antithesis of a, perhaps a scientific approach. But today, with AI, I know that you're looking at that, or we can we can really have a look at the data, but also give a very targeted uh, answer. Who's Dr. Burgess, same question. Yeah, I think one thing that we miss is uh, with DEI is a access. And it's, it's allowing people to have knowledge and information about research. The, the um, issue of informed consent, we can no longer do things to people without their informed consent. So that is one thing that should be emphasized with uh, clinical trials because just like Sheila, she can join a trial and then in the middle of it say, I don't want to do it anymore. That's her right not to do it anymore um, and participate in whatever the trial may be. And a lot of people don't know that. They think they're getting into clinical trials unbeknownst to their uh, approval and that's not the case. So I think one thing that a sponsor can do is reiterate those things now that, you know, the Helsinki Act has put into place and all the laws and things in the U.S. and what rights a, a subject in a, in a study has versus the, the sponsor or the pharmaceutical company. I think that's one very important thing. I know that when I do clinical trials, when my monitor comes to the office, she's checking those <laughs> informed consents to make sure I've gotten those. So that obviously is the most important aspect 
to any clinical trial, no matter what company or where it's done or what, what have you. And I think they go hand in hand. Um, you know, when you take clinical trials, I go to a research hospital in St. Louis. But what about people that are in um, underserved communities that don't go to research hospitals? So how are we getting um, the information or the education to um, the community, um, the black community, about um, you know clinical trials, or even the, um, the VA? You know, I hear sometimes that even in the VA, their um, veterans are not offered clinical trials. So um, on my trial, I would have to be there every three weeks. I did this for three and a half years. Every three weeks I had to be there, and I was there sometimes from nine to 12 hours. So, you know, how are you approaching your patients to say, okay, you might have to be here for nine to 12 hours, but what about daycare? What about transportation costs? What about, um, okay, I'm gonna have to pay this copay or gas, or am I gonna keep my lights on? So it's a lot of things to consider, and I always tell when I talk to, um, doctors is like, do you know your patient? Do you know that she has three kids? Do you know um, where she works at? Um, do you know she has health? You know? So I just think that, um, yeah, I think they go hand in hand and uh, we just need to make sure that everyone has access to clinical trials. You know, in my hospital now, you know, when you walk in off the elevator, there's a sign that says clinical research and it's a, it's a picture of a clinician. Then as you walk in my doctor's office, there's another banner about clinical trials. And then you're sitting in the waiting room and there's this, you know, the screen, it's not CNN or nothing like that. It's about clinical trials and what's going on in the hospital, what the phases are, everything. I'm like, well, what if every hospital had that? You know, but it's stuck in my mind that, okay, I've seen this about this clinical trial. I can go in and ask my doctor about it. And then another thing, why is the onus always on the patient? Like, I got enough going on that I can't trust my doctor to tell me something, a five or 10 minute conversation about a clinical trial. You know? So I just think that it's important you know, for advocates like myself to make sure, and I tell my story because I want people, the black community to see, this is how you're supposed to be treated. You know? I'm asked all the time, well, you don't have any stories about race mistake? I said, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I've never experienced it. And I can say I've never experienced it, you know. And I'm grateful to my doctor for suggesting um, the clinical trial. Because the first thing she said, she said, was, Sheila, I really want you to have this top-notch research. And I appreciate that. And I said, let's go with this. So it goes hand-to-hand, you know. If we're talking about healthy swap, um, equity, we need to still be talking about clinical trials. And, and I think that, that that's the interesting piece, that you don't divorce the two, right? right. Like, the, clinical trials are important and integral to bring medicines to right. forward for patients, and that we need to be able to start to obviously acknowledge what's happened in the past, right. but recognize, to Dr. Burgess's part and point, there have been a lot of regulations and laws and legislatures passed globally to be able to ensure that patients' rights are protected when they choose to participate in a clinical trial, that from the time that you offer consent, you are not bound to stay in that trial if at any point you feel uncomfortable, or maybe your situation has changed where this no longer suits you. And so just being empowered with information, I think just across the theme that I've heard around sessions um, over the weekend, we need to start democratizing that information. Information is power, and you know that's the piece where that empowers you. And so you were empowered by the relationship and the information that you were receiving from your HCP. Dr. Burgess, you empower your patients and, and your followers based on you being that board certified expert to be able to say that you are truly an authority that has the credentials to be able to advocate. And so, Geraldine, you've talked to us about how the pop culture piece plays into it and the fact that that's part of the decision making, unfortunately, right? It's nice to be able to have those experts that go to, but we oftentimes go to those platforms to be able to seek out information and start to differentiate from the scamming culture, which I have to tell you, I was all in leaning in research <laughs> on scamming culture, but what, how do you start to differentiate what is truly fact or fiction? Yeah. 
I think what we talked about um, being board certified, being accountable, uh, being consistent with just one example, we used being on the advisory board of that mm -hmm. and taking into account mm -hmm. being consistent even if it took a year, you know, putting uh, mm -hmm. what your advice to be by a leader in, in mm -hmm. the field into action and and what what needs to happen with popular culture also is that when these uh, waves of popular sound bites and trends uh, get get taken, that they they're going to come across as something that's being co-opted. And the moment that we co-opt it, we must not underestimate the public and mainstream culture. People understand when something is co-opted, and that's when there's a breakdown of trust. And I know, for example, in the fashion field, when we look at the community of people living with with a disability. I mean, I know that's like a very broad term, but that has a lot of intersectionalities. Uh, the trend of showcasing people within that community on fashion magazine covers, wearing haute couture, next thing you know, there's no long-term initiative to really design uh, with, with these different people's needs in mind. Nothing has been agreed on. Nothing has been built in long-term to serve this community. And then there's a complete breakdown of trust. And I know from personal experience of working directly with leaders in that specific community, that they, they lose the trust. They don't want to advise. They don't want to, they no longer want to be in that in the conversation in the boardroom because they don't see anything being done long term. So um, I guess that's a broad way of, of answering it. But even though maybe not everyone sees that from a social media perspective that a leader, an advocate, is losing trust, it's still felt. It's still felt because something is not being um, acted upon long term and, and, and really uh, informing the system of how things are done. And, and I think that's important because commitment goes beyond words, right? You have to have investment into what you're saying that you're going to do. And I think that's... Um, actually why we're launching the admire program because this is great to have these forums and these discussions but there needs to be continuity of that discussion and that collaboration and so we recognize that we my team of 12 within the abby ecosystem does not have all the answers abby doesn't have all the answers industry doesn't doesn't have all the answers and we need partnership and diversity of thought is important for us and so to be able to continue it, continue to perpetuate what we started here, we want to be able to have that partnership. And so we do have the Admire program where we have a website um, and the call to action really is if you want to be part of change and you want to be able to just give your perspective on what do you think you can inform for the solutions, you sign up and you know for opportunities where you can basically just share your voice. Like this, what we're doing right now, when we're co-creating, even Dr. Burgess, when we just had those advisory boards, we just had questions and we talked about ideation and what can we bring forward in terms of what would be impactful, what would make sense, and that's actually how change happens. And so we want to be able to create fertile grounds to be able to grow new ideas. And so, um, you know, we're, we're going to be moving forward with being able to see how we can basically cultivate those ideas and bring them forth. We're all about solutions at this point. We know the, the challenges have existed. Um, lack of representation in clinical trials or even just health inequities exist. Um, all industries are now tapping into that. The environment is primed for it. So now we're focused on what are the solutions that we want to bring forth. And so, Geraldine, I just want to go back to, to what you have on your website. Everyone owns the, owns the future. And so it's about what, are, what is each person going to take away from this conversation on how they can play a role in driving change. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, in terms of everybody owns the future, it's also about understanding that we can all be visionary and perhaps the, the solutions are not um, even invented yet. Like, for example, in my work, I look at the future of work and the various fields that are really um, emerging. And a big word that we talk about because it influences all industries is the care economy and the fact that the WHO has predicted that this will be the biggest market sector, the biggest job sector in the future. And if we look in parallel with developments with AI, different technologies, mm -hmm. I think the jobs 
uh, to enable this more equitable future that is more diverse and inclusive are there. They might not even have been invented, but there's there are a lot of jobs that probably exist that can enable these like granular personal um, approaches that that are needed for for uh, a plurality of profiles really, and that that can still be data driven. Any other comments? No, I just well, I just like one. <laughs> but I do want to thank you, um, Abby, um, for this Amire, um program because it shows that you want to help with the solutions, um, and you see that there's a problem. And a lot of times, you know, people don't see it. Oh, it's no, but yeah, it is a problem. So I just want to thank you for that and acknowledging that there is a problem, and we're going to help. Um, communities, not only communities of color, but everyone that's faced with, um, you know, for me, um, metastatic breast cancer, that we want to just help everyone, um, you know, as far as clinical trials and making sure that there's diversity and inclusion in all we do. So. <laughs> I want to say thank you as well because I think the progress it starts also with having certain tough conversations, mm -hmm. or, and this was a very positive conversation, but we are bringing sensitive topics to the foreground, yeah. and, and so I'm happy to be to be here as well to discuss building trust. Mm -hmm. In some ways, where trust was never there to, to really begin with, or, or rebuilding it, but I think when I look at digital culture, culture and the, the, the discontent that is kind of happening, um, it's fascinating to see just the ripple effect that it has that it can be incredibly negative, but we, we can ride that wave and turn things around and ride popular culture, things mm -hmm. like social media to our advantage mm -hmm. and really advocate. And we've seen that in social justice, how powerful yeah. social media can be as well. So I think it's, it's, it's a nuanced uh, approach as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably the most happiest of all. <laughs> I have spent my life on advisory boards, and I have said the same things over and over again. And I'm really, really happy to see that Abby has taken the initiative, mm -hmm. and that it's it's finally. And, and I know you're going to be the trailblazer because mm -hmm. now other companies are going to mm -hmm. copy what you do. And I've said the same thing to them, but I think you know you're taking the the horse by the reins and you're and you're moving with it. And, and like Geraldine said, if you know notice and have the acknowledgement that something is going on, but you don't go the next step mm -hmm. and take care of it, it's it's meaningless. It, it really is. And and I really do commend you all for that. Thank you. And I think we, we basically, the call to action is to turn insights into action, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you know better, you do better, right? And so we, we all need to cultivate those learnings and be able to think about what's the plan forward and not leave here with just the, okay, I, the, that was good information, but what do you do next and how do you actually action it? Mm -hmm. So with that, I think can I'm One more, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I did have another progression. Um, I found out Monday. So I am going on a clinic another clinical trial and I just wanna say this is just how much I trust research. My doctor said we have another clinical trial for you. So much great it's a lot of great things coming out for metastatic breast cancer and she said i want you to have this trial so hopefully i can start it in two weeks but i just want to say this is just how much i trust clinical trials to go on another one because the other one works for me and um i hope that the black community can see hey sheila tried this trial i'm gonna try it you know and i'm gonna ask my doctor about this trial I'm you know, I was all want to work before, right? <laughs> Don't start. No, but but it wasn't. It was tears of joy in terms of recognizing. Don't make me cry. Sorry. <laughs> we don't often hear those stories, and the work that we do behind our computers, um, and the work that we we always say that the patient is our north star, but to be able to hear these stories for you, you think that you trust science, that you trust 
like it gives us more value to why we show up every day. Um, I thought I was all cried out. <laughs> and I, you know, I think I could go on, but I think clinicians and research and my doctors and I just met um, Dr. Burgess and I'm like, oh my God, I'm like in awe. And Geraldine, I'm like in awe. It's like, you know, I just thank you because I'm here alive today because of people like you and people that really want to find a cure for this disease. So I do, whenever I speak, I'm like, I appreciate you. And one thing, another thing, and then I'm done, <laughs> is, you know, you know, sometimes metastatic breast cancer patients say that the treatment or the medicine failed me. And I, there have some, been some medicines that have failed me, but this clinical trial did not fail me because it gave me three and a half more years to be with my daughter, to have my another birthday, another Christmas, another um, um, New Year's or whatever. And I just really, 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 really appreciate you. I, I just don't know. Just to live 13 years, and they tell you you're gonna be dead in three to five years. So I really do. That's it. Cause I'm gonna start crying like Oprah. <laughs> 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 We're gonna gather ourselves. And if there's any questions, um, <laughs> please feel free to step up to me. <laughs> yes. Yes. I do have a book. I wrote a book. It's dedicated to my mother and father. Um, I lost my dad in 2021 and I lost my mom in 2004. And it's about my metastatic breast cancer journey, but it's also about clinical trials. It's called A Survivor's Win, and it's on Amazon. Or you can go on my website, www.asurvivorswins.com, and you can order it from there. But, yeah. I have my signed copy. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Geraldine? No, I'm trying to speak to it. <laughs> I mean, they say in the diversity and diversity, uh, sort of semantics, that it's about listening. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess I'm, I'm listening. And, um, I'm, I'm honored to be a part of this conversation because I come at it from a different mm -hmm. angle. I'm not an expert in, in, in the medical field. Uh, so Listening to you, so necessarily have a lot to add. And Thank you all for your transparency. But first, I have a question. What can you do to help inspire more minorities to join the conversation and to inspire more black physicians? Your question is, is very important, and this is how do we get more subjects and studies and physicians training to um, conduct the research trials. Um, that's been part of what I've been about for the last probably five to seven years. Because I've been in practice 35 years. And I look at 
I'm going to retire soon. Who's coming up behind me? And there's no active programs to initiate people or get them interested in clinical research. And um, that's why I, I have advocated uh, Principal Investigator 101 with a lot of very top, um, huge pharmaceutical companies that's really gone on a deaf's ear. Um, but Abby has, you know, turned around and I, I was very surprised when they came to me and, and said, we want you to help us with this um, program that we want to start. And it's not only the big pharmaceutical companies, it's the clinical research organizations as well. And those are the people that the sponsor of the pharmaceutical industry hires to conduct their trials. And so sometimes they don't know what's happening out there because they rely on the CROs to gather the, the uh, principal investigators. Um, they're looking at, and then the principal investigators are the ones who recruit the patients. And so if you are selecting the same principal investigators, and they're selecting the same patients, we're still at square one. So it's, it's mixing it up, um, getting people in different locales. I mean, I, I kind of look at it like the census report, in that there's certain diseases that we see that could qualify for that categorization and where there's 50-50 gender, there's 22% you know, Latinx. And so when you look at those studies and it's a condition that affects all of this cross um, uh, population, then that's what the FDA is saying we want to see in the studies. So if this is a condition that only affects New Yorkers, well, they want to see New Yorkers in the study. They don't really care about anything else, but if it's a cross-global type of initiative or treatment, they want to see that you're doing that. And unfortunately, what I find is the FDA kind of lacks on it sometimes. Like they'll say, we want, in dermatology, we have Fitzpatrick skin types, one through six, and sometimes they'll tell me, well, we want you to gather more five and six. Well, what about the other sites? Aren't they responsible for gathering other ethnicities? Or you're just relying on me to do that? And that shouldn't be the case. It should be everyone should have the criteria we want, a certain amount in skin type one through three, certain amount in, in uh, four, five, and six. But I find they don't do that. So it's, it's recognizing, it's a collaboration between the government, the FDA, the sponsor, which is the pharmaceutical, the CROs, the clinical research organizations, the principal investigator, and the subject, and the, the participant. That's what has to happen. I, I think, I'm sorry, I know this is a question, but just going back to, to that point, I think it's important to, to recognize that, um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. You can go ahead. <laughs> I do that all the I was, time. What you came up, my thought went out. I'm sorry, throw you off. Um, one, I'll just say thank you to everybody for sharing their story. Um, Seth Richard and we saw each other, and I will say I'm very fortunate to be a part of the advisory board where I love that you shared. Um, you, amongst others, shared a lot of uh, the feedback that now has really helped um, progress some of the work that we're doing at Abby. Um, Sheila, to your point, your doctor reached out to you. Your doctor actually connected with you and let you know at that critical point that there are clinical research programs that potentially help you in terms of your, your treatment. Um, so we know that you were fortunate enough to have a doctor who understood research, who believed in research, and actually worked with you again as part of your surgery. So Dr. Burton, and, and also just everyone on the panel, I just would like to understand we know not everyone's going to become a clinical research investigator. Um, not everybody has the time or, or really you know, may want to do that. But you know, we still don't care about education gap, I think, in terms of treat, treatment uh, physicians who may not know about research. So, uh, Dr. Gordon, for you, what are some ways that we can reach some 
treaters who, who are just kind of not used to even understanding what research is and then giving them the education so that they can bring us I think the most powerful source you have are your representatives out in the field. Um, we see these reps at least once a month. Um, they're, you know, all over the U.S. And, and I don't see why you don't utilize them. Because there are physicians who never did research. You know, I probably wouldn't have if I didn't go to NIH. Or they may have been involved in only bench research, which is, you know, the earlier phases. And so when you're out in private practice, you're probably dealing with a phase three or phase four study. And one, do you have the capacity or the locale or what have you in order to perform it? But a lot of people just don't know. And when I when I mentor my students and residents and things, they have no idea because it's not taught in the curriculum. It's the only way you know is that you knew someone who did clinical research in their office. I'm not a typical uh, site. I mean, I'm a clinical, an assistant clinical professor at, at the Georgetown Washington University and, and Georgetown University, but I don't conduct my trials there. And so there are issues with local IRBs and, and, and uh, central IRBs and all the red tape that may, a person may have to go to to just even be a principal investigator. So it's, it's really important to educate physicians. And I think the easiest route would be through your representatives because they're in their offices every, every month. And then the other one is the clinicaltrials.gov. Um, it, it's kind of a lot for patients or uh, the consumer to go to these websites because it's all these words they don't understand. But the physician knows what these things are. And if there's a condition in where, you know, it's a hematologic condition, they can go there to see where the trials are being conducted. And I, and I really think maybe a lot of people don't know about that. Being in clinical research, I know about that. So that's one way, I think, two ways to reach uh, people as far as giving the patient information and where they can start. That really resonates with me. Just quickly, you know, in the talk, we talked about um, reaching out to communities, reflecting different communities, and it makes sense that your representatives, if you're going to talk about community, your community is your representative. Um, among that is your representatives mm -hmm. that can really democratize access for you, um, which which is something in, in futures we talk a lot about futures literacy. The hope is that maybe someday, you know, there won't be futurists because it will be taught at school or it will be normal. Um, I guess the hope is maybe what you're trying to do, what you're advocating for, maybe mm -hmm. someday you won't need to advocate for it. It will be the norm. Um, but, uh, that community work is means so many different things. Absolutely. And I do want to say too from a patient perspective that I know um, these big companies give to like um, Coleman and these big organizations, but why not give money to the grassroots organizations that are helping taking patients to, um, to treatment um, and giving them and say, hey, I'm going to give you five or ten dollars $10,000 to go into your community and let me see what you can do with that. How can I educate, um, how can you educate your community about clinical trials, um, about different things like that? Or even having, like I was saying early, earlier, a PSA, um, one or two minute in the church. Can you show this PSA about clinical trials or about Abby or whatever? And just have that um, nugget of information there even if it's nobody in there that's been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer or whatever cancer, but they'll still be able to take it back and say, hey, I heard this about, or I'm sure most people know people that have had cancer, but just having um, the resources that um, other communities have and undeserved communities will help a lot. You know, like um, Ricky was saying, um, educating my community. And it, it really is, it's all about education because I didn't know so much about breast cancer. I didn't know there were six types, subtypes of breast cancer. I'm like, I thought it was just one breast cancer, you know. So it's just different things like that that we still need to um, 
And a lot of patients don't even know what type of breast cancer they have because they never thought to ask their um, doctors. But it's up to me to go into the community and say, hey, these are the things that you should be asking. But it's also up to me to come to stuff like this and say, hey, how can you help my community as far as resources and money um, so I can get this education out? Because in some underserved communities, the membrane grant won't go into the community because it is, you know, because of the type of community it is. But that's not fair, you know. Why is the mammogram only going to, um, you know, white communities or, you know, no, you need to come into my community to, so they can see that it's all about trust. Once you have that trust with our community, and you, you gotta do something really, really bad, but once you have trust in our community, in the black community, we're going to trust you for life, and we're going we're gonna to ask the questions, you know, um, and do the things to help our community, so. And in closing, I'm just going to sum it up, because I think we said everything that yeah. we want to say, but information is access. Yeah. And so I think that, that, that sums up what we've heard today. But thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>